Cristiano Rocha is a seasoned engineer who started his career as a master's student in artificial intelligence. Fresh out of university, he bootstrapped his first company for about eight years, back when venture capital in Brazil was almost unheard of. As a young founder, he established a reputation as a knowledge management evangelist and a community management specialist. Almost by accident, Cristiano also became an expert in M&A when he merged with two other companies in order to gain strength and get funding. This three-way joint venture was called the Faro Lab, which grew into the largest corporate training company in Latin America and was eventually sold in 2015. A hiatus got Cristiano into angel investing, but he missed the thrill of building. Almost a year after that exit, Biz Capital was born to help Brazilian businesses fund their operations in a fast and simple way through an online lending platform. And this time, they decided to play the traditional stage financing VC game. In this episode, Cristiano compares his fundraising experiences and shares a few lessons he learned as a second-time founder. Stick around to learn how you can think of M&A as a viable growth strategy, the thought process behind going down the venture route, a few good practices around managing communities, and how technical founders can not only build the best products, but also the winning products. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. So, Cristiano, it's great to have you here on the Latitude Podcast. We've known each other for a little while now, and I want to go back to the early days a little bit because we've seen the ecosystem evolve quite a bit in Brazil and in Latin America. And I hear that you're partially responsible for Google being in Brazil. So tell us that story, if you would. <laughs> oh, Brian, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, so I would say that's an overstatement, but let me tell you a little bit about the story. So, and uh, I'll start with my background. So I'm a computer science engineer and I did my master's in artificial intelligence. Uh, and back then, nobody knew what that was. And that tells a lot about how the ecosystem has evolved. And my master's dissertation, I presented a paper. Now, you submit papers usually when you do a master. And I published a paper at the WWW conference in New York, which is pretty much the biggest conference for the World Wide Web. That's why it has the same name. It's, it's sponsored by the WWW Consortium. So I went there. There were very few Brazilians. And I presented my paper. I was very challenged. I was 23 years old, New York. Uh, I remember the day I was doing my presentation. Tim Berners-Lee was on the audience. He's the one who created the web. And then I knew there was a happy hour sponsored by Google at night. And happy hour, 23-year-olds, you cannot ask for more than that, like three beers. So I went there. And I got to know another Brazilian called David. And me and Brazil, David, we, I mean, he was also presenting a paper there. We became friends during the happy hour. And as good Brazilians, we stayed as long as we could. So in the end, there were only like, 15 people left, and the guys from Google said, guys, and this is like a very fancy office at Google. Google was not even a public company back then. Uh, they were still private. This is 2003. And they said, guys, we need to close the office, but we can continue drinking somewhere else. And we're like, why not? I mean, sponsored by Google. Let's go. Let's do it. So me and David, and then we went to this very fancy like bar in, in Times, Times Square, Manhattan, and we were having fun, me and David talking about a lot of things. And, and it's interesting because there were the Google guys and there were some other people around, but mostly uh, Google people. And then all of a sudden, the most senior executive, which is a guy uh, that has already, he had worked previously with Apple. He was a very senior guy for Google. 
And he comes to us and say, well, guys, you're from Brazil, no? We're like, yeah, we are. Oh, that's great. I need some advice in Brazil. I mean, Google's struggling in Brazil. It's a very hard market for us. Do you guys have any advice on how we should pursue Brazil? And I'm like, well, of course. This guy, Davi here, he works for Aquan. Have you ever heard of Aquan? And he's like, no, tell me more about it. I say, well, all the good, the, the, the best portals in Brazil have the search engine by Aquan. And these guys, they're the best in, in search engines in Brazil. So you should go there and buy them. Uh, and that's, that's what you should do. And it's funny because uh, that's the end of the story pretty much there. Like some months later, actually maybe a year later, I go in the newspaper and say, well, Google is buying Aquan, which was a pretty big, bold movie at the time. I remember, uh, I mean, if you think about the early days, uh, you had Buscapé uh, being bought by, uh, by Naspers that then, and, and then you had Aquan being bought by Google. It was a big move. And I never knew, I mean, exactly what happened there, if I had anything to do with it or not. <laughs> and it took me 13 years to know the answer to that question because uh, I pretty much... Uh, did not exchange more uh, uh, messages with Davi. And 13 years later in China, actually, when we got to meet each other, we go back to that at some point, but I meet Davi again. And I said, Davi, Cristiano, how are you doing? It was like 13 years since we had last seen each other in New York. And I said, man, tell me about that story. What happened there? And he said, well, I'm going to tell you what happened. So I come back to my office so for six, nine months, nothing happened. And then one day, one day, the CEO of Aquan comes to us and says, guys, there's an international investor. He's coming to, to, to get to know us. So please behave well, clean up your desk, <laughs> that, that kind of stuff you tell your employees uh, when someone is going to visit you. And then all of a sudden, the guys enter. And the guy who enters the room is exactly the senior guy that was in the bar with us in New York that asked the question. And Davi was like, no way. He comes to his CEO and say, man, I have to tell you something. This guy is not his, who is he pretending to be? This guy works for Google. Google is the one that wants to buy us. And his CEO said, okay, David, yeah, Google is the one wanting to buy us, but nobody can know about it. So don't tell anyone <laughs> that you know it. So That's amazing. And to think about 2003, Google acquiring a company. Was this company, where was it based? Yeah, and that's the whole story. The company is based in Belo Horizonte, so that's yeah. why the main headquarters for Google in Latam is in Belo Horizonte because of Aquan. So all of them, David became one of the most senior engineers for Google. That's the reason why they have their headquarters still in Belo Horizonte because Aquan is a big part of all their engineering still up today. So that's amazing. That's, that's, amazing. that's a that's a fascinating story and goes to show that there is just talent there. Google acquired this company, made it a huge kind of dev center for them in Latin America. Now you, it turns out you, you know, you yeah, had actually, your- Actually, this was not 2003. They were bought, I think, in 2005. So it, it took a while for that. It took a couple happen. years. I, I yeah. never got my finder's fee for the deal, but- <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know, that's, it all comes back. The funny thing is that you turned out to be quite active in M&A kind of by accident, right? I mean- that kind of first experience you had, you were just there and you kind of made a suggestion and lo and behold, it actually happened, but you became quite experienced in M&A, right? So tell us about kind of a little bit more of your experience on that. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. I, I tell the M&As, they come uh, haunting me all the time. So uh, let me go back to my early days. So I, I decided to be an entrepreneur right away. 
actually, when I, I was at that conference, I was already thinking about being an entrepreneur. Uh, I decided to, to be an entrepreneur pretty early on in my career. So I started with 22 years old. And I had this company, which was a SaaS company for knowledge management and skills management, stuff related to HR. SaaS company in 2003. So that's also very innovative at, at that time. And the company uh, was really interesting. For example, we, we launched a social networking platform inside Petrobras, which is Brazil's biggest company in 2003. And this is before Facebook even launched. So, I mean, we were very innovative in a lot of things we were doing. We were gaining a lot of traction. But this is the post.com era. So there was no VC money at all uh, in Brazil. This is company grew really well. And then 2008, 2009, we really wanted to grow fast. We felt like there was a big opportunity, but there was no one to fund. I mean, we cannot get money from the banks. And we looked for VC. There was no VC. And then we went and talked to some private equity guys because they were the ones writing checks at that time. And we went to a private equity, really focused on our area. And it's like, guys, I love you guys. Really interesting idea. But you're too small for me to write a check to you guys. So don't you have like a couple of friends, not the companies that you could maybe somehow merge and to become bigger and then we can write a check and make sense? And we said, well, let's think about it. We thought it was a crazy idea, but we didn't have anything to lose. So we started talking to some other entrepreneurs which had companies similar in the similar area. And in the end, we said, well, this might work out. So we decided to, 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 to try it. So instead of merging directly, we kind of merged our offices. We still worked under different names, but we we started mingling people, projects, and things started working well. And we said, okay, let's do it. So we decided to do it. And we came back to the, the private equity guys and they said, well, yeah, we're going to invest. And at that time, they wrote a $10 million check, something like that, which was pretty good money for Brazil at that time, especially at the stage we were. And, and it worked very well for us, Brian. I mean, we really consolidated the market. In four years, we went, our revenues uh, increased 10 times and we became market leaders in corporate education. So the name of the company was Ferro. So we merged three companies, actually, not only two, we merged three companies right away. And we became the market leader for corporate education in Brazil. So out of the five biggest companies, top 500 companies in Brazil, 200 of them were our clients, just to get you a sense wow. of what, what we accomplished. And, and, and it's interesting because we really saw firsthand two things. The power, if you really do a nice merge, uh, how can it propel the company? And another thing is the VC money, in that case, a private equity money, how much it can do for the company. So we really came out of nowhere and became market leaders in like four years. And, 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 and then we decided it was not enough. We said, why not another merge? And then we did a second merge. At that time, we were number one in the market. We decided to merge with the number two in the market. So we became even bigger. And we created a new company. And in the end, that company was sold to a strategic uh, media company, a, a German media group uh, called Berlusman, which we eventually sold the company for them. So... Uh, I like to go back to the M&A thing because usually when you hear about M&A in startups, usually it's about a company who is not doing well and another company goes and acquires that company. So it's not really an M&A. It's more A than M. 
And I just think there's a lot of nice things about the merge to really good companies and trying to create a new entity. I don't think it's enough in the playbook of founders. I think founders think of M&A or especially M merge as like a less resource. They don't have it on their playbook. And I try to discuss a lot of why is that and how we can change that because I definitely feel like uh, merges should be part of your playbook. Not necessarily the strategy you pursue, but they should be considered. And when you think about that, I mean, because it's, to me, it's a little counterintuitive because if you're growing and you're a small startup and you're organically growing, you know, there's some cost that comes with complexity of merging your company. So in what circumstances would you think that that would make sense for, let's say, an earlier stage startup? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's the decision on when to do it. I don't think you should do it very early. But And things are changing. I think we're going to discuss a little bit uh, the changes in the ecosystem. But this is back when a time where there was no money, not necessarily venture capital available. So I think things have changed a little bit. But my perspective is that somehow still in Latin, still in Brazil, two things might happen. Your market is a nice market, but it's not like this huge market. So I tend to say that in the US, pretty much anything you think there's a huge market. That's not necessarily true in Brazil or in Latam. Sometimes, uh, so for example, we were very narrowly focused on knowledge management tool. Of course, it was a very interesting thing, but the real market was corporate education, which was a much bigger TAM total addressable market than just knowledge management. So I do think that sometimes if you don't feel your total addressable market is too big, Maybe trying to merge to be on a bigger market is definitely a, a strategy. And another thing is sometimes if you cannot raise the amount of money you really need, sometimes uh, for some economies of scales to really begin to pick in, if you, it's going to take too long for you to reach there, maybe you can shorten your times if you merge with someone. So, of course, I definitely feel that there's a lot of cases that it could be on the table for you to make things happen faster or if you don't have enough money, or if you feel like your market is not as big as you thought in the first place. Yeah, it's funny because I recall with very clear thought process of early in Viva Rao's journey, I remember having a conversation with Mickey Malka, right? The famed kind of investor founder of Ribbit Capital, and he's done a bunch of other, built a bunch of companies. And Mickey was like, Brian, why don't you, why don't you buy Zap? <laughs> and this was in 2012 or 13, and I'm like, man, those guys are like 10 times bigger than us. And so it ended up starting a conversation a long time ago that resulted in a merger. And we obviously, the industrial logic in our case made a lot of sense to put two companies together for multiple reasons. But I do think that it's not top of mind for founders. How would you suggest if that's something that a company does relatively early on in their journey, how do you mitigate when you've got founders that are they kind of care about their business and there's egos involved. What advice do you have to kind of like build this bigger pie and approach it in the right way where it's like you're unifying teams with someone else? And is there usually a dominant player on one side or can there be, because it's having co-leadership of a business doesn't really work well, right? Yeah. So that's, that's another great topic. Uh, we did it twice, and the first time, uh, we were very afraid of doing it. I mean, you always read about the m that don't go well. So we thought about it very carefully. 
we took time to hire uh, a, an agency that created a new brand. So we created a new entity, a new brand. We discussed values a lot. So I feel like that's very important. Another thing, we were all from the same city, uh, same university. So that helped a lot. I mean, that's something that definitely helps uh, a lot. And we took the time to really discuss the things. And we were very humble that we create, want to create something much bigger. So no much egos involved. So who, who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to do what? Of course, you have to be humble enough to understand that you're going to have smaller role. That's definitely part of the thing. You should have a smaller role because there's more people involved, but you're going to accomplish something much bigger. So I think you have to understand that and really work for that. In the second merge we did, we thought we knew how to do it because we had been a successful the first time and then it was much worse than the first one. I mean, you have to be humble because every MA is a different MA. And I think we should definitely have spent more time trying to understand. Uh, because I think the, the, the thing that you should be really thinking about is, of course, you want to know if you're on the same market, if there's synergies. That's what's pretty much everybody's going to tell you. So, I mean, that's the obvious. The un- non-obvious thing is the devils is in the details. So what really on a personal level that person wants? Do they want to do an IPO? Do they want to be a, to sell early? Do they want to have big salaries or small salaries? So I feel like that's the really difficult part because sometimes if you don't align on these small things, even if you want to accomplish something big, uh, these things will come along. So I, I, I'd say that you... One of the most common things people ask me, what, I'm going to have much less stake in my business. And and, and one thing that uh, my first private equity investor taught me, and I think it's really a lesson, you should not look at equity percentage. You should look at equity value. So how much equity value do you have? And once you do this merge, is it going to double or triple your equity value? I mean, it doesn't matter if your percentage maybe goes down by 20%, 30%, 40%. And I still feel like most founders, they are very in love with their cap table in terms of how much percentage of the company they own. And they don't think enough in terms of how much equity they actually own. So I think that's a change of perspective. But definitely, I don't believe in co-sharing. I always think that if there is an M&A which a company is leading and that company is really the main company in the thing, it makes things much easier. If it's like really two equal companies, I think that's much harder to do it, but it can be done. And I'm not saying there's no collateral damage, Brian. Uh, definitely some partners are going to be left in the way. Usually people leave, partners leave, uh, but are you creating the company for yourself or are you creating the company for the ecosystem to pursue something much bigger? So, I think in that sense, you're right. If you're thinking from the the founder perspective, it might be very challenging. But from the perspective of really creating value in the ecosystem, you can be up for a much bigger thing. So just to clarify, I'm not saying this is something for everyone. I'm not saying that you should do it always. I'm just provoking that I don't think people talk enough about it and I don't think people pursue it enough. So for example... We just had a, 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 an example of two companies who, which were doing really well, Jiru and Rebel, and they just created Open Call. And that's the kind of move I'm talking about, like two companies doing well. Of course, they already five-year-old companies. So I feel, go back to your point, maybe one year, two-year-old is too early to do it. But you definitely should be thinking about it if you're like 
series B maybe after, like in terms of what we're discussing here? Yeah, there's value creation to be had and there's a strengths, different strengths that complement each other and a shared vision and you can drop the ego and build something bigger that you can probably unlock a lot of value besides not lining around the virtues behind what you're building and the, the kind of removing the ego and those things. What other challenges do you see or things that either you've screwed up or you've seen someone screw up in the M&A process? Well, I think it's not on the process. I think it's post 90 days. Usually when I'm friends with someone who's doing this move, I usually call them and say, man, do you need some advice? And it's interesting when you merged Viva at that time, I, I met someone from Viva and said, well, if you need to talk about it, I'm here for you. Uh, because I think the first 90 days is really where things begin to get really difficult. And one of the things is your employees. I think the founders usually... They go over it very quickly. They really want to accomplish. They're thinking about the new entity, but usually the employees are not. So you have what we call the widows of each company. And sometimes the fights are in the middle managers. They're looking for power, which is the company, which is the culture that's going to really be there after it. So uh, my say is you definitely should be very careful about communicating and involving your senior guys, your middle managers, because I think there's there's where the problems usually happens. I think usually you can get a very good alignment on top, but sometimes you can't get that, especially uh, from executives. Executives are different from entrepreneurs. And sometimes we feel like we are aligned. Why are they they not aligned? And it's different perspectives. So I would say being very careful on the rollout especially with the managers of the company. Uh, I think it's something that people sometimes don't discuss and don't see very often. Take me through the first 30 days. What do you do? Give me the first two weeks, 30 days. And like, you know, (laughs) I know that it's a very specific question, but like, what do you think if you were to boil down the most critical things that need to happen in those first 90 days, what, what would you say they are? I would say create a core group involving people from the two sides to really discuss uh, the culture uh, together with the founders, creating uh, alignment around the culture and communicating that really well. And maybe having people which are culture soldiers around the company from each and every company. Uh, one thing that's it's not necessarily on the playbook, but it's something interesting. If you hire people, new people, they come already on the new company. So they are not widows of any of the other two companies. So sometimes it's really good to create, to hire new executives in the sense that for them, this is the company. They don't have any relationship with the previous company. Sometimes that helps also. And I say really create roles and responsibilities, understand if there's going to be one company really calling the shots or not, uh, being very clear about it. Or I don't like the co-CEO thing. We did it the second time and it did not work really well. I think you, you really need to set uh, who's in charge, who's in command, and, and be really clear about the governance of the company. And sometimes people are like, oh no, let's have two co-CEOs for like six months. It's a way for us to get no better. And I don't know, I, I would not go that path. I would definitely try to shoot for one CEO, decide, have the difficult conversations up front. Uh, don't try to have the difficult conversations after 90 days, 180 days. Bring the difficult conversations to the table as early as possible. Yeah, I think the tone is really set in those first couple months, right? I mean, whatever you, everything will be compounded by how you deal with it in the first couple months. And so you've got to get that right. Let's transition a little bit. You've built a handful of companies where, you know, you've merged a couple companies, started a couple companies. 
Now you're running Biz Capital, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but how you've been leveraging technology because you know, you're an engineer by trade and you've talked about how technology and automation was used this time around and other lessons you've learned as a second-time founder. Well, I guess there are a lot of good things about being a second-time founder. Uh, it's funny because when you sell a company and you probably went through that, it's a very emotional thing. I mean, lots of thoughts go through your head if you did the right thing or not. But definitely one thing that was really good about is, well, I have a second chance to really start from scratch and learn from my lesson. Because a lot of the lessons, sometimes you cannot apply at the same company because the things are already there. So you need to switch gears. So the second time around, me and my co-founder, we decided, well, we want the next company to be kind of a lessons learned of our first company. And, and, and there's some lessons that we learned the hard way. So our first company in the end had 800 employees and we felt that was too many people. I mean, for what we were doing at that point. I mean, it was a, a very nice company. We're very proud about it. But it was hard to innovate at that time. And as you begin having more and more employees, innovation begins to be much harder. So we decided that we wanted to be freaky about automation. If we can do it by machine, let's try to do it by a machine. And since we are engineers by design, as you mentioned, I mean, that was much easier for us to do. And we decided that we really wanted to be uh, automation freaks the second time. And going back to this capital, we're very proud because after we've been operating for five years now, pretty much five years, and, and we've accomplished a lot. And one of the things that was really very interesting to us is after 12 months, we had already disbursed loans. So we do micro loans to micro and small companies. We had disbursed loans to all 26 Brazilian states like by the first year. We're like, man, that's the power of digital. Uh, but at that time, we still had like a lot of people deciding whether or not to grant the loan. And as of today, I mean, we are able to approve a loan in, in one minute for a company we've never seen, we've never spoken, and the money is in their bank account in the same day. And pretty much there's no human being involved in the thing. So that enables us to get to a point where uh, we raise our Series B having 70 employees. So, I mean, we really very automated. Uh, I love that saying that you need to do things that don't scale before you scale. So we always start like doing things very manually, but always thinking about how we can automate it, automate it, automate it. So automation, it's a big part of what you do. And I feel like it makes something much easier for you to innovate much further down uh, your company life. So one thing that I found about my first company that I don't like is that after 12 years, it was really hard for us to innovate. And, and the market today, I mean, you have to be always innovating. But I do feel that the less people you have, the faster you can build innovation. So I tend to think that's not only a good thing on your bottom margin in having a more automation, but also it will make it easier for you to create new innovation down the road. So I love, for example, the case of Melius. They just did an IPO and they had less than 200 employees. Uh, now they have already 400, 450 after like six months of IPO. But it's a very interesting case on how you can really create a big company, successful company without having that much people. So uh, that was like one of the, 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 the main things that we want to accomplish. Of course, the second one is culture. Always focusing a lot on culture. Yeah, I think it's a really important point for those entrepreneurs listening. The measure of success 
a lot of founders like to think like, oh, we're at 500 employees, 300 employees. And like revenue per employee is a much better metric than number of employees, right? Like, yeah. and, and I can totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because uh, what happened with our first company is to get bigger, we began getting services as well on top of products. And service makes you get really bigger, but with low margins and lots of people. And we decided we do not want a service-oriented company. Our first company was a product-oriented company, but did a lot of service. And now we said, no, we're going to be product-oriented. And an employee is a vanity metric. I mean, of course, every founder loves to say that they have a thousand employees. It's, it's really good. It's a really good feeling to have all the army working for you, working with you on the trenches. But the real truth is it's more a vanity metric than anything. I definitely feel like uh, looking at revenue per employee or in our case, how many loans you do per employee, uh, those productivity metrics are are much more interesting if you try to think about that. Yeah, I made a promise to myself the next company I would create has a much lower number of employees. You know, it's it's hard, it's stressful, it's the culture becomes difficult to manage. And I can relate to being slow, right? I remember being the attacker coming in, moving quickly, in, out innovating, and then all of a sudden we you know we got a lot slower and it just became difficult to kind of re- recreate and reinvent. So I think that's a really important a lesson there for that you take away. And also the automation piece, like you hinted at this, but there's just a double click on it. The bottom line appreciates that, right? When you're able to have a more efficient company, that affects profitability in, in a massive way. So let's transition a little to the, you know, a little bit more of the VC game. You you've bootstrapped and you've raised capital, right? Yeah. You've had th- those different experiences. So you decided to raise capital for biz capital, right? You decided to, to go the venture route. What's the thought process like on why to go down the venture route and kind of what are your general thoughts on that for founders that are starting out? Well, that's a fantastic question also. I mean, when we first started, we did not have the luxury to try to pursue venture capital. So there was no other way. And it's interesting because uh, we had to be profitable from day one. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's good from the perspective that you you start really understanding if you have a healthy business or not. So we knew first day that we had a healthy business. We were profitable for six, seven years before we went to the private equity guys. So it's it's definitely a way to pursue, but it's much slower. So what happened with us, we had a very nice company, but after seven years, you start to talk to some friends. They're like, well, you still only $2 million in revenue? Oh, no, nice. So, and you start feeling, yeah, I should be growing faster. Why am I not growing faster? So I really think about uh, the speed of growth is really uh, the question on bootstrap versus uh, venture capital. And this time around, we wanted to do it differently. We knew that there was an opportunity in the market. Things are getting much faster. We did not have that window of opportunity already. We saw that consumer lending was a taken market, but not on the SME space. So we decided we should begin to do fast. And to tell you the truth, I mean, we wanted to try things in a different way. Of course, we were seeing the ecosystem in a totally different way, lots of VCs. And we were approached by Monashies and they said, guys, do you want to be entrepreneurs and residents here with us? Come here, let's create a business plan together. So it was really exciting to go on the venture round and try to create something in a stage financing kind of way. So I feel like, of course, you have to give up equity for that. And that's always a challenge. When should I do it? And at that time, we even had money to invest in our own company, but we decided to go to venture round anyway. But on the other hand, I mean, having 
the governance that creates an investor, having a board from day one, really being able to move fast and not having to think about profitability like right away. Of course, it's always important to think about unit economics, but you don't have to be profitable the first year. Uh, one thing that is very interesting for me, Brian, our first investor was a private equity. There were only one word that was say pretty much on all boards. And the whole company talked about this word, which is a word that actually a lot of entrepreneurs are not really knowledgeable of the word, which is EBITDA. So all our private equity investors care about was EBITDA. Every meeting, how's the EBITDA? Is the EBITDA increasing? They didn't want to know exactly if the company was increased, but how is EBITDA? EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. That's the only thing I heard while I had them on the board. And it's <laughs> interesting because you go on the VC and EBITDA is not even really talked about. Nobody speaks about EBITDA. Maybe when you go IPO, people will ask, what's your EBITDA? But people will ask about your CAC, your LTV. And how you're growing your top revenue. But it's interesting because it's a very different focus. It's a focus on growth. And I wanted to experiment myself really if that's a good way of creating a company. And five years later, I would tell you that both ways really work. But it's much faster to go the venture round. I mean, you really have money to invest. If things go well, you do another round and you invest more money, you bring more good people. If you're bootstrapping, it's hard to bring good people on board. Because, I mean, you're not able to pay good salaries. If you're fundraising, I mean, definitely you can, I mean, you, your stock values more, you have more liquidity, you can use work better with stock option plans. So I definitely feel that growth is the main thing. If you feel like growth is a factor in a market, and I would say that pretty much probably 90% of the market's growth is a very important thing right now. I would say that uh, playing the VC game is definitely a very good opportunity and a very good strategy. It's funny because I'm one of those entrepreneurs like you that it wasn't by choice that I didn't raise venture <laughs> capital. I mean, I often sound like the kind of the grandpa that walked seven miles in the snow to get to school because there was just wasn't money, right? And so there wasn't an ecosystem. And so I think the, the lessons I've learned in terms of venture capital, one, I do think that having venture having a ton of money isn't always the best thing, particularly if you haven't gone the venture route before, because you're not always a great steward of the capital if you haven't had the experience of scaling a company. But for more experienced founders or founders that have a very clear idea that they want to scale, I think it can be a really magical thing. And the thing that I missed the most not raising venture capital early on was that when I did realize what we could do, I think that I became less focused on the long term because I needed to cover the costs every month. And then I, I wasn't able to see around the corners and predict and have the vision of like what this could actually become. And I think that it shortened my horizon of what I was building and therefore was less disruptive. And venture capital allows you to kind of like obviously execute in the short term because you have the capital, but think a bit longer term and be more disruptive in what you're doing. So I think it's a great tool for a lot of founders. Yeah, definitely. But I agree with you. If you have too much money, I mean, you might lose focus as well. So sometimes people feel oh, the, the bigger the money, the better. It tends to be that way, but you have to be really careful about it because it, it can broaden too much your focus. And I think focus is also something really important for a startup. And of course, if you have very few cash, you're definitely going to be very focused because you don't have the luxury of broadening your scope. If you have too much money, you might broaden too much scope. So I think uh, there, there should be a balance there. And it, that's very important as well. 
Yeah, I, I think that the financial constraint does help you decide what's important, right? And exactly. pr- prioritization is probably one of the most important things as a startup. You've got to decide what you're not going to do because as a, a friend of mine and, and mentor investor, you know, Simon used to always say, entrepreneurs love to chase the bright and shiny lights, right? Yeah. Because there's so many problems to solve. There's so many opportunities. So I do think that having some resources constrained allows you to focus. However, when you've nailed it and you're ready to scale it, putting a pile of cash into a business can be a very defensible thing. It can have defensibility through speed and having a war chest is something that, you know, if you look at the real estate market right now, you look at Quinto and you look at Loft, it sucked the oxygen out of anyone trying to to go into the real estate space because there's so much capital there in, in both those companies. So that's something that can be a defensibility strategy. Now you have a technical background and I think that the founders that are getting most of the venture dollars are mostly MBA, which I think there's some important skills when you and it's a stamp of approval. If, if, you, if you go to HBS or you go to MIT or you go to Stanford or any kind of top tier institution, you're definitely, it's a way to separate someone that has a fairly high level of intellect usually or is, shows that they can get through the process and kind of play that game. It's a, a sign of some credibility. But what I've seen is that most of the founders that are going through the venture ecosystem and raising capital come from those backgrounds. And they're hasn't been a huge amount of founders that have deep technical backgrounds. What can we do in Latin America um, you know, to have more, I guess, fund those technical founders? My co-founder, Yuri Danilchenko, who's uh, just like you, did his master's in AI, and he has a very technical profile. And it's his dream to figure out how we get the, you know, the hardcore technical founders uh, some, you know, some capital, because we think that that's going to be a, a critical piece to innovation and, and building the next generation of companies. What are your thoughts on that? Love that subject. I mean, trying to zoom out so we can zoom in. One thing that's interesting is, uh, and you can tell me if you feel the same way, but whenever I go to the United States, uh, you guys are natural born sellers. It's amazing how people sell things really well in the US. So each time I'm talking to someone in the US, not only people's on sales-oriented careers, but like people in general, they're very good sellers. They talk very well. So I just feel like everybody in the US is trying to sell me something. And I think you guys kind of, the sales guy has a positive perception on the community. I don't think it's the same in Brazil and in Latin. I can speak more specifically in Brazil. But I do feel even in Brazil, sometimes people... In the past, I can remember people that were sales guy not not telling they were sales guy because people had like this kind of bad attitude against, oh, if this guy is trying to sell too much, maybe he doesn't have as good of a product because he's trying to sell it too much. And if you really have a good product, you don't need to sell it. People will just come and buy it. And I don't think that's the way it is. Unfortunately, I think selling is a big part of everything you do. If you have a startup which has a fantastic product, but you cannot sell it. You're going to fail miserably. And, and sometimes you can even have not that good of a product, but a fantastic way to sell it, and you're going to kick it. So, I mean, I think that a lot of the technical people, and I include myself back in the early days, we always felt, ah, tax the thing, and I don't need to sell. I remember one executive coming to me in my first company. At that time, I was the COO of the company. I was having some struggles with the, with the CMO or the chief sales guy, and the, comp- the person came to me and said, Cristiano, 
sales is really the one which pulls the company. Sales is the motor of the company. I mean, it's not operation. Operation goes with the company, but you need someone selling. And, and I, I think sometimes, uh, going back to your question, I feel like tech guys uh, have to create also selling skills or storytelling skills. Uh, and I think it's a big part of the VC game. I think whenever a VC uh, goes to hear a pitch, they don't want only a technical breakthrough. They want a nice story. They want a nice selling. So you really need to sell your idea really well. And sometimes I feel like people don't address this issue as much as they should. So for example, imagine you're creating a company and you don't have a CDO. You're definitely going to ask all your friends, man, I need a CTO. I need a CTO. You probably get that inquire all the time. Brian, do you have a CTO to introduce me to? Now, you also had the difficult time in trying to find your CTO at some point. But people don't think enough about maybe having someone in the company who really knows how to create a nice storytelling to sell the company. And there's two ways around the question you've asked. One is how do we change VC's mind to have a process which is more inclusive and maybe we will include more founders which are tech-oriented and they don't know how to sell their dream. Or the other way around is how can we teach more tech uh, entrepreneurs to really feel it's not only about the technical product. You really have to sell your dream. You really have to be good in storytelling. And these are things that you don't necessarily have to uh, be born with those skills. But those are skills that you can definitely educate someone. So there's a lot of storytelling skills that you can try to educate someone. You can read about it. You can try to broaden your selling skills. Or you can bring someone on your team that helps you with that. So I definitely feel like people don't talk about storytelling uh, as much as they should for uh, raising capital. Because uh, I understand that VCs, they, they hear like pitches every day, like 10 pitches. So you really have to differentiate yourself. So I do feel that trying to uh, create a nice narrative. And then you probably have seen that. Sometimes you see two companies really, really look alike. Founders look alike. Markets look alike. Traction look alike. And one company like raises money like every 10 months. And the other company have like a very hard time in raising money. And you keep asking yourself, what's happening? Because I know both guys. They're really good. I mean, both companies are really good. And one has like rounds and rounds and rounds and the other one doesn't. So I do feel that their bias on the selection process, of course, we are humans. We always have a bias. One way for me to tackle this is I learned early on, uh, even though I was a very tech guy, that I should broaden my selling skills, my storytelling skills. And thankfully, me and my co-founder, we were really able to do that. And that has really helped us a lot. But I think it goes back to trying to educate in those skills for most of the tech founders. I agree. And I like that from both angles. One, more experienced VCs recognize that and see that as an opportunity. And then I think that developing those entrepreneurs that are, are more tech-oriented and less maybe gifted in communicating a vision or selling the idea, this is a, a teachable skill, right? In fact, if you're an engineer and you know how to, you're amazing in X framework, learning how to communicate, is it's a learnable skill. It's anything you can practice and get better at it. And so that's something that I'll transition in a second to latitude and community building, which is something that you're big in. But I, I just first wanted to highlight the fact that if you look at what YC did, right, they were able to go in and identify these hyper-technical people and then teach them that. 
And then all of a sudden, when you have the combined effort of tech with the ability to communicate, it's it's a super powerful thing. And I think that one of the biggest myths is that the best product wins. The best product, it's the product that gets distribution wins and then that raises capital and then becomes the best product because you have the capital. And so I think yeah, that's yeah, something yeah. that... I was born and raised, I mean, uh, when I started, Microsoft was the biggest company on earth. I mean, this is 1996, 1997. And one thing that you definitely, everybody knew from Microsoft, they did not have the best products. They, they, now they have a fantastic job, but back in 96, the guys knew how to sell it. They were not the best products at all. And by the time they got money, they began to fix this. So it goes back to the selling thing. And I think technical guys have to understand how important it is to sell stuff and how important the selling skills are. But there's another thing that you definitely should do. And I think you, you went miles in doing that is having people more educated about the VC game. I love your book and I love how you try to teach people how to play the game. Because sometimes if you don't understand the rules of the game, you don't understand how to play the game. So you have to understand that VCs are not interested in companies which are going to be a hundred million com dollar companies. They want a billion dollar company. And if you don't pursue something very bold, and if you don't try to be bold, I mean, it's not of interesting for most of the, the prime VCs. So people have to really understand what's going on on the other side. And I think that's definitely something that you can educate as well. So trying to educate people about the VC game as you're trying to do with your book and trying to create those storytelling, selling uh, skills. And it's still a challenge for us now. Uh, every time we raise a round, Brian, it's very hard, you know? I mean, people think that's easy to raise a round. No, it's definitely very hard. And every time you really have to get your storytelling right to, to really get a good round. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. So I think this is a good transition to the last topic, which is around community, because you, know, you mentioned the book and what we're doing at Latitude is trying to democratize more access to information around, and it's part of the objective of this podcast, right? Like I call people, friends of mine that have built really interesting companies that have had experience that made a lot of mistakes. And then we kind of create the, some of the best practices and, well, first of all, how did you become a community builder? Because remember the first time we spoke, I was like, wow, you actually have like a methodology in your, in your thinking. And like, it's, I guess that's the engineer in you, right? Instead of like, I built community. I'm like, let's get some friends together and talk and share information. And then you bring this like methodology to the, the thing. And I'm like, wow, this really makes sense. I would have never thought about it in that context. So tell us how you became a community builder. So it goes back to 2003, as I was mentioning, uh, we had this idea of launching social networks inside companies. This is very early and definitely was not just build it and people will come. We had to really sell the dream, evangelize people about social networks. Of course, you don't have to do that anymore nowadays. We started studying the thing. So for eight years, my company, this was one of the main things that we used to sell. And we had a framework on how to create and engage online communities. And today it might sound very awkward because, man, I just created a WhatsApp group and everybody's there sharing knowledge. So I think everybody understands the value of sharing knowledge. You know how hard it is to be a CEO, a founder, a co-founder. You're very alone. A lot of books try to address that. So exchanging with your peers is definitely something very valuable. But uh, should you try to create structure around it or not? And I think that's one of the main challenges. And I love the analogy of a plant. So imagine you're trying to, you have your own plant, you have your garden, you're creating a plant. And everybody knows that if you don't put water in the plant, 
the plant will die. And also, if you put too much water, it might die as well. I remember the other day buying a plant to someone and the lady said, well, don't put too much water, water otherwise the, the, it will die. So what's the word you use for a gardener? It's not managing, it's cultivating. And I love that analogy. So communities are not managed, they're cultivated. So you cannot create too much structure, put too much water. But if you don't put water every once in a while, it also dies. So how do you balance that? And sometimes people just go create a WhatsApp group. And I don't know if you've seen it. Sometimes the WhatsApp group is great for two weeks, three weeks, and then it begins dying off, dying off, and dying off. And all of a sudden, there's one message every month, and then the group dies. So how do you really create a structure? But of course, if you go the other way around, everybody, everybody, Brian gets there and say, people, let's put your lessons learned from yesterday. People are going to say, well, this Brian is crazy. He feels like I have time to every day come here and put my lessons learned. So the real question, the real challenge is how do you create some level of structure that's not too awkward on people, but makes the community really thrive? And there are some best practices there. And, and one of them is trying to have a leader, someone who's really wants to be a leader. And you always ask, well, what's there for the leader? Because he's going to spend some time in trying to be a leader. A leader is someone who tries to promote the community, try to bring topics. And, and, and if you try to think of most of the community participate, there's always a leader. I mean, if you go to a school lunch after 20 years after they graduated, there was someone on their class that lead, led that. Otherwise, there was no lunch. So usually you need someone to step up and try to be a facilitator or what we call a champion. So I feel like uh, that's something you don't see very often, usually on communities of entrepreneurs. And I feel that usually you don't get as much value as you can. So what are things that VCs have done that I like? I mean, we knew each other on a community event. Monashis used to take portfolio companies to places. We, we knew each other in China. Maybe if we hadn't gone to China, we would not be speaking here today. And you know how much knowledge was created, distributed in that week that we were together. It's amazing what you can accomplish. So how, but you cannot go to China every, every day or every month. Even nowadays, it's hard once your portfolio goes very big. So how do you create that level of engagement in a virtual world? Some other VCs, they put annual surveys, tell me what tools you use, what you like, what you dislike, and then they send those surveys to all their portfolio companies. The real thing is, I don't think people are leveraging enough the knowledge of the founders. I think there's too much knowledge to be distributed. And I love the idea of what you're doing. But for me, having worked with communities for like seven, eight years, I definitely do think that there's more that can be done in terms of creating a little bit of structure around, and I would be glad to try to help there. And, and one idea I do have, which it's not necessarily about community, but it has a good relation, is having a founder on your board. I definitely feel that people don't do this quite enough. So in our board, the Biz Capital, we have Sandro, which... Uh, is the CEO of Jeru, now OpenCo. And it brings values. I mean, you have your VC, you have your external, but having other founders on the board, I feel that goes miles in helping other founders. So I definitely feel like one thing that you could promote is each batch, maybe if companies already have a board or a consulting board, 
try to have one entrepreneur be on the board of another company. I think that's definitely a way to exchange tacit knowledge. I like that a lot. I mean, I, I brought, when I negotiated the Series C, I insisted that the investor nominate operator, founder to, to be on our board instead of having the financial kind of you know VC person. And I mean, it, it was super helpful. In fact, that person helped me with my first M&A. And so yeah. it's a very, a very relevant concept. And yeah, in terms of taking you up on the community aspect, at Latitude, we're just in the early days here, right? And so I think we've got a burgeoning community. You know, we've got some activity between the founders. And my dream is that like everyone kind of helps each other, right? Because it's an unsustainable model for me to be advising every single company that I talk to. I try to do that a lot. But now that it becomes the volume of startups that are looking for help and support, it becomes too too much. And so if you can build a sustainable model where the collective knowledge becomes the brain instead of just one individual, there's much more value to be extracted in the community and supporting other people than there is on an individual basis. So I think that's that's the place we want to get to. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And one thing I remember, once I had a leadership program sponsored by Monashis, which was kind of a community event as well. And we had this fuck-up circle, which each founder, we split ourselves in four founders, and you really had to tell a terrible mistake you had done. And I was amazed at what came up. I cannot tell here, and they all known founders. And when you hear that, you say, man, there's someone struggling with the same issues I'm struggling, like committing big mistakes as I have committed And that's so good for you to understand that there's people in the same position you are, also with the same challenges and doing, coming up with huge mistakes, but of course, learning from them. And I learned so much from that session. So, I mean, for me, uh, it's really, uh, if someone knows how to tackle this, it's really, really a scalable advantage on anything you do. If you really can create a way to leverage those. Uh, Of course, today, the bad thing is there's so many fast things to do like WhatsApp, that people begin so addicted to it, they say, oh, this is what you need to do. Is just create a WhatsApp. But I feel like there's so much more that can be done than just creating a WhatsApp group. And I think there's something that's still up to grabs. I think that's something, maybe it's the extra thing that Latitude will do. We'll know how to tackle this issue. Nobody has done it on the entrepreneurial world. And I think it's up for grabs. So I would definitely be awesome. very willing yeah, to we're, help we're, you with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I love that you mentioned the fuck up. We did our fuck up nights, our first one a couple a month ago, and it was one of the most popular sessions we did. <laughs> everyone just laid it out there. And it was like, it was energizing because everyone knows that they have their challenges. And when you hear that someone, particularly that you admire, went through all these crazy things to get where they are, it just humanizes us. And I think that's super important. So I think that's a great note to end on. And uh, yeah, I will definitely take up your offer. You're already a mentor and we're going to figure out how to integrate you into our program. Um, you know, I know that you've got a lot going on with Biz Capital and that you're pretty busy, but people like you are willing to make a little bit of time and help build the next generation of iconic companies is what we're doing at Latitude. So thanks for your time today. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure and definitely up to it. Let's help try to change it and let's create a healthy community for Latam. Vamos, Latam. <laughs> Vamos, Latam, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Cristiano Rocha, co-founder of Biz Capital. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts 
for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.